Hey everyone, life is all about giving and receiving with one another. That's why I love to give my time and energy to bring the show and make it available to you. If you ever feel like you want to give back, you can actually do so by buying me a coffee. No, I'm serious. If you go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash humans are divine, you can buy me a coffee and I appreciate it. And I say thank you ahead of time. Thanks a lot. Hey, everybody. I am here with Jake Bellows. He is a musician, amongst other things. I'll let him say what's going on with his life, but uh, that's how I know him, and I do enjoy his music. But I also enjoy his insights, and I got to know him a little bit, and he has some pretty cool things to say about spirituality and religion and the human race and team human and uh, how we're all in this together. So I'm excited to talk with him, uh, with y'all. So, hey, Jake, how you doing? Hey, Jesse. I'm doing great. Thank you. Thanks again for being on the show. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, seems like fun. I enjoyed our convo on the phone. Um, it's awesome. Great, uh, great idea. Have a show. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So uh, spirituality means so many things to so many people. So where does your spiritual journey in life begin? Um, oh, well, geez. I guess... Um, the things that I kind of look for, uh, personally are like, um, universal truths. I think that maybe that is a standard for most people's search for meaning, uh, you know, of their lives and, and, you know, what, what indeed is the ultimate point of your existence. And, um, I don't know. Everybody ends up in different places, but it's interesting. I think that the parallels that a lot of, uh, a lot of religions have as far as the goals and kind of the rules of engagement and, um, the way, uh, they recommend you treat one another. And, uh, there's a lot of very common themes, I think that, that run through, um, a lot of these, uh, belief systems and, and I find that fascinating. And I also, I, I, it makes me think that uh, there's a composite view of uh, spirituality that can include. It's funny because, I mean, I know I, I've been guilty of this, but like when you, when you talk about looking at the moon and how we're only seeing what we see and how many of us are guilty of thinking whatever we came up with or whatever we figured out is like, no, that's it. That's it. And it's like, you're, we're, we're one person in billions of people throughout, you know, however many millions of years we've been here. Uh, it's just so interesting how it's so simple to fall for that flaw of what I see. That's it. Or that must be the way. Yeah. And it seems like some of that stuff is a little bit hardwired in our, in our DNA. Like, um, we're, we're pattern, we're pattern finders, you know, we're human beings. It seems that we continue to look for patterns and try and, uh, you know, find a logic an overarching logic that seems to illustrate how the universe works or, or on a very small scale, how, you know, fishing works or how, you know, like foraging for food works, the things that you can eat that you can't eat. And, um, you know, so we develop these things. These are our experiences that then dictate uh, whether or not something has been successful or unsuccessful. And I guess, like, um, if it was successful for us, then we kind of assume that that is the way to do it. And um, and I guess, you know, even people with the best of hearts and the best of intentions might find themselves pushing their way the things that they've discovered onto somebody else when that particular methodology may never work for them, um, that they have their own experiences and their own um, perspective from which to search for their patterns. And uh, I don't know. I mean, so I, I think it's easy to get confused and it's easy to decide that you have found the best um, technique for you and presume that it's the best technique for for all um, a lot of different angles 
And uh, something that we kind of touched on the last time we spoke is like, you know, an analogy would be uh, looking at a full moon. And as we look at a full moon, you know, we call it a full moon. We think it's a full moon. We're seeing what we think is the whole moon. But obviously, we're seeing exactly one half of the moon. Um, That's the best that we can do with anything that we can perceive, you know, kind of from our, uh, from our perspective, like we can only see one half of anything. And so we kind of require a composite view of, of the same thing from all these different angles. And so humanity kind of as a cooperative and maybe the universe at large, um, plays into our uh, uh, making making it possible to do something like that. You said that really well. And you kind of like, I've always thought these things, but I like, I liked how you said that. That's really cool. Uh, so what, what spiritual paradigms is, is Jake Bellows enjoying right now? What, what are you into? Um, you know, I find uh, in the last few years, I ran into some, um, Sufi poets, and I know that most people or a lot of people are very familiar with uh, Rumi and oh, there's a spider trying to get my water. Well, maybe you could have a little drink. I guess I can share what the heck. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, like uh, some of these Sufi poets, uh, Hafiz in particular um, is one of my favorites. I picked up a book a few years ago. Randomly, I was up at... Uh, there's this big bookstore in Portland. It's very famous. I want to say it starts with a P. Um, have you ever heard of it? Do you know what I'm talking about? No, Portland, no, I can't say. Um, well, it's anyway, it's a quite famous bookstore, and uh, it's pretty special. Um, but anyway, in there, they had a bunch of used books and things. And this particular book kind of reached out at me. It has a yellow cover. It's called The Gift. And it's by a, a man named uh, Hafiz. Of course, the, it's been translated uh, by Daniel Ladinsky. And, um, and uh, anyway, uh, as I was reading through it, it's called Powell's. Powell's City of Books. That's what it's called. Anyway, I completely recommend it. I feel like they curated an amazing collection of books. And it's a huge store, so... Maybe it's less curated than, than I was led to believe. I always think it's so fun to go through a bookstore with nothing to buy, with nothing that you're looking for, and kind of see what you find, you know? It's like, uh, I don't know. I guess it's uh, the, the equivalent, the bookstore equivalent of uh, going through your life and seeing what things speak to you and what things uh, reach out to you. So in this case, it was the the philosophy and uh, kind of the spiritual practice of the Sufi for me. And um, it's not a very strict religion as far as um, I can tell. It is a sect of the Muslim religion, although it doesn't have a ton of the same things in common. Um, But uh, I find it to be absolutely beautiful. Um, it, it allows for the humanity. It, it allows for, um, you know, uh, basically it, it, it doesn't really deal in judgment. Um, these guys, uh, get drunk get drunk on the roof and howl at the moon and, and talk about how beautiful the moon is or, or that it's God's face, uh, reflecting in you as a mirror or maybe God's face is in you and the mirror reflects that, uh, in the moon. And so, uh, that kind of dichotomy, uh, and, uh, acceptance without kind of judgment, there isn't really a list of rules. The rules would be go easy on yourself and others. Um, you know, understand that your, your worth is a, is as much as any as any creature or any creature's worth, I guess, because of your entangled nature with God. That's beautiful. Are you familiar with the band uh, Me Without You? I, I know of the band, but um, 
I'm afraid I'm ignorant of their of their stuff. Uh, uh, but I, I'm interested to hear about them. Well, the singer, his mom is actually a Sufi mystic. And uh, so with that, and then the singer also being involved in Christian mysticism, a lot of his lyrics are very, you would probably like, if you like Rumi or if you like uh, uh, the other guy, was it Hafiz? I say Hafiz, but only because I'm ignorant and I have no idea. You know, it looks like a two syllable word to me spelled H-A-F-I-Z. For sure. I think I just forgot. But anyways, his, his lyrics are very uh, mystical and they talk about things kind of like what you're, what you're talking about. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm sure I, I would look for I look forward to like finding out more about them because I don't know anything about them. I had no idea that they were entangled with Sufism. One thing that I like about people like Rumi, and I'm curious your thoughts, is that I, I feel like when you read people like that, you kind of just be, I mean, maybe because it is poetical and it, you just kind of like turn off your like critical like like let's just say you're a religious person and you want to like analyze everything and like is it in line with my doctrine or the bible or my book but things like that you kind of like you kind of like like loosen loosen up a little bit and you're kind of like oh i'm just reading like a nice artsy book and and but then it does speak to you on a spiritual level but it you know poetry and art and creativity like kind of get past our critical mindsets if you know what i mean yeah um well it's like there's a version of religion and spirituality that is a list of rules that you follow if you want to be um, complicit and participate, you know. And then there's a version, and, and, I, and this is maybe this is a far out analogy, or maybe it's just like a clunky, um, uh, inscrutable analogy. But uh, it's like uh, with mechanics. I, I just finished this project rebuilding the top end on my motorcycle, and. Um, I know this is sounding like a, a Persig book or something, but um, as I was working on it, I, I encountered these problems that I didn't know how to overcome. And so what I would look at, and, and it's COVID, so, you know, I don't have a mechanic um, to talk to. I tried calling a bunch of people, but nobody really knows without being there. And so they don't want to say, um, but you look at, let's say a failing part and you say this part is failing what is this part supposed to do and then you kind of look at the parts around it and you say oh this is supposed to seal this area and uh, not allow anything to uh, air or or oil or anything to weep out of it that's what it's supposed to do so if i can make that happen then this part becomes functional. And so it's not about what the name of the part is. And it's not about um, the specifics of what the manual tells you, all of these different things, although the manual will tell you how to fix the bike, but it uses all this proprietary language that is like engineering language and mechanics language that not everybody is familiar with. But uh, once you understand the nature of the part, and what it's supposed to do. Um, it's kind of like the philosophy behind the list of rules. And, and I guess that's kind of what I'm getting to is that uh, Hafiz and, uh, and some of these uh, Su Sufi poets, and even uh, in, in Christian literature, you know, I love the Proverbs. And I think that they illustrate the philosophy behind the religion and that maybe that is the important part, you know, like the stories with with Jesus and stuff. So I, I grew up in the Midwest and it's pretty common to have, uh, you know, considerable exposure to Christianity. Um, I grew up in, in a church, although it wasn't a big part of uh, what I considered to be my spiritual life. It was a big part of my social life at the time. You know, we went to church camps and we had a good time floating down the river and raising hell and, and making a bunch of jokes. And, you know, at the time it was like, we're sleeping over at this camp, you know, uh, there's, there's girls there, you know, like now all of a sudden you're trying to understand what your relationship is with, uh, you know, other people and, uh, and, uh, other sexes and all these things. And you're trying to sort all this out, not on paper, not through a list of rules, but, through your experience and 
and and what it all means. And anyway, I guess that's a little long-winded way of saying that uh, the philosophy behind these spiritual beliefs to me is more important than the the denotation of their rules. You know, uh, a book that I was reading recently had had to do with you know the early, the, the first Christian theologians. Uh, they were actually people who meditated a lot. They were people who would spend years like not talking and just like not using their the intellectual side of them, which has its place. Uh, but then let's just say they let's just say for ten years they li- they lived in the desert. They were a monk. And they were all about things like we're talking about, like like wonder and mystery and silence. And then they they, they ended up did become becoming you know these big theologians, but they really did have this. So for example, the this, this book that I'm reading, it's called um, oh geez, it's called uh, Nisa and the Grasp of Faith. And there's like a, there's like a subtitle, but but pretty much Gregory of Nisa is this uh, big time OG theologian, and he says he teaches that our our mind is like made up of parts. And so our, you know, there's a part of our mind that can be logical and rational, et cetera, et cetera. But there's, there's a faculty or a power or a function of our mind that can reach God or be one with God or be with God, but it's totally foreign to the way that we normally think. And it's very similar to, to, to Buddhism and Zen and things like that. Uh, but it's just so funny to me how, how you know, the Christian church starts out with people like this who did embrace wonder and mystery and like what you're talking about. Like, it's not about like knowing everything or, or having the manual down. And that has its place sometimes, but it's really just about like embodiment, if anything. It's just about like living and it's about this dynamic thing, not this like it thing in my head. I know I said a few things, but yeah. Yeah, I think that, you know, the nature of our modern world um, discourages uh, philosophical and theological kind of like distractions because, uh, you know, you stay so busy and it's like you decide what is important to you, you know, and most and a lot of people come down. It's like, well, it's important to keep my family alive and, and safe and fed and clothed and homed if you can, you know, like all these things. And, and those become the expression of their, um, uh, you know, goodwill and uh, their religion. And, and so those things are an expression of that very thing. However, it's a little um, family centric or something, you know, it's like, it, it excludes it excludes any others and um and I think that you know it's like I have always found and and maybe you're the same it's some people gravitate towards i think because of the nature of the life that I've lived, you know I spent a lot of time with music and lived a little bit of a different experience I didn't um find a career, I didn't go to college i didn't um participate in these same ways instead I spent you know 25 years uh playing music and uh visiting with people from around the country and around the world and um and because these things are interesting to me these are the types of things that I would talk about with these people and so slowly through those you know travels and and uh disparate experiences um it helped me kind of start to form a composite of, uh, you know, what I think is happening and, um, and what might, uh, and how I might better participate or might be more useful to the world. You know, um, I feel some sense of like, uh, I guess sadness and or regret that I didn't get, uh, you know, there's a there's a big trade off uh, with music and this not to get too personal about me, but, you know, if you're a, uh, you know, marginal kind of lower uh, or not super popular, you know, like you're not selling records, you're not making a living really playing music. I mean, you're making it from day to day kind of, um, but usually with a part time job or two, um, it, it's a totally different uh, approach. 
And so your focuses are different, you know, so you don't end up with the same like, oh, I need to provide. I mean, I needed to make sure my dog has food. You know, Dragon's a good guy and he's skinny, but he still likes to eat every day. So anyway, I guess I didn't end up having the same type of focus or the same type of experiences as a lot of people. But when I start talking about uh, what what they what most people would consider more, you know, like abstractions about the way that you live and about uh, how you want to participate, who you want to be in any given situation, how you can help or or whatever. Um, I found myself with a little more freedom to think about those things than somebody who has to put in 40, 50 hours a week. Um, and they're doing that just to keep their family and them afloat. Um, so it allowed me uh, the freedom to be able to think about this stuff. And, and, uh, and I just think a lot of people don't really have time for it, or at least they don't perceive themselves to have time for it. They're just like, hustling the best that they can with the things that they're doing and to ask them to do more is a little more than anybody wants to hear right now you know it's like they got their hands full and so um anyway i i've kind of come to understand that too why not everybody has a ton of opinions about this stuff or why uh um, mystical (laughs) sufic poetry uh, doesn't have a ton of, you know, um, gravity to some folks. They're not interested in that. You know, they're interested in whether or not their family's in danger. And I feel like the the media cycle, the news cycle has picked up on that. You know, they use, they use that fear to motivate engagement on every level. And, um, and I feel like that's a very crude tool that uh, is being used to manipulate really just the flow of cash you know they want you to engage so that their advertisement continues to be worth something and so they continue to make money off of your fear and your um disenfranchisement and uh and so it's a it's a difficult situation where uh yeah most people don't have the time to to mess around with all this other ways of thinking and, but yet they're still being hit with these, uh, moral dilemmas and, um, constant threats, existential threats, but without the foundation to, uh, to look at it as a, uh, species at large or, you know, uh, not necessarily species, but, you know, a culture at large or a, uh, a world cooperative society. You've got my wheels spinning and I totally, I totally agree with what you're saying. And, you know, it, it made me think of this. I can't think of the movie. I feel like it was called Intuit or Intuition, but there was this movie on Netflix about this kind of stuff and uh there was this great school in like the uk or something and it was like it was a public or i guess i guess it was a private school i don't know but it it was it was a school for kids but they would also like incorporate things like meditation and i'm bringing this up because it's, it's making me think about how do we make helpful quote spiritual things like easy to access and not more food on our plate. Cause like you're saying, it's so true. It's like, everyone's busy just trying to survive and you want to, you want to talk about <laughs> meditating or whatever, whatever the heck, you know? And so anyway, so in, in this movie, you know, these kids at school, it was these two, these two boys, they're learning how to meditate. Right. And so then they go home. And so they interview the kids and the dad, uh, I guess it was just M3. And the kids talked about how like, Oh, when they would get into arguments over their, their toy cars or whatever, uh, they ended up, you know, meditating and then they would get along. And then, and then the dad was talking about how like, oh, my God, like my two sons are like teaching me how to like not get angry and how to like uh, get along with people, and how to not fight and how to like, you know, make peace. And, you know, so it's like, how do we that's that's obviously one great example. But it's like, how do we incorporate these important, you know, truths and practices without, you know, like you're saying, without, you know, having to leave our job or, or whatever, you know? Yeah, um, I came across uh, an interesting book 
Uh, I haven't read it yet. I've got it on order. It's kind of expensive. Or to me, it's expensive. It's like 35 bucks. <laughs> and I'm just like, $35, you know? Like, uh, it's hard to quantify the value of knowledge, but yet it's still sometimes difficult to spend $35 on a book. But um, the book was is about um, some Inuit practices uh, they're by this lady by the name of Jean L. Briggs. And uh, one of them's called The Inuit Morality Play, The Emotional Education of a Three-Year-Old Boy. And the other one is called Never in Anger, Portrait of an Eskimo Family. And um, I, I just read an article that kind of uh, uh, was a synopsis of of what they were talking about and how they how they were approaching it. And so this woman went and basically was adopted by this Inuit family. And, um, and she got to see close up how they kind of raise their children and how they do things like discipline and things, whatever. And in their culture, it's considered, I mean, so uh, taboo to be completely ridiculous uh, for a parent to get angry at all uh, or for a person in their culture to get angry, um, particularly at a child. And so their approach is completely different. You know, like there is like, I mean, a lot of cultures have different approaches, but um, I I find theirs to be kind of profound. And I feel like, there are some great life lessons to take forward and not just life lessons, but techniques as far as dealing with people with love and respect, you know, and some of these things are echoed in all kinds of different uh, religious beliefs. You know, you think about, uh, you know, reggae and the Rastafari, you know, um, they talk about the I and I, which is the, we, you know, that we consider each one of us, um, of the same, you know, of the same cloth. And, um, but, uh, but in general, um, that, uh, going forward. So like, you know, one example I think that was in this article was, uh, about a kid who's throwing a tantrum about some odd thing and then like hits, hits the mother. And so the mother doesn't get upset and, doesn't necessarily uh, do anything about it at the time, but then Leah takes the boy outside and uh, and says, "Hit me." And and the kid, you know, maybe uh, and they wouldn't do it. And then they're like, "No, we'll take this little rock and throw it at me." And they throw it at me. And she says, "Ow, do you not like me?" And the kid's like, "No, that's not it." Do you want to hurt me? And he says, no, that's not, not it. And why do you, why would you do this um, violence to me? Maybe, you know, like this kind of thing. And um, that, this was their approach, you know, like, which is fascinating to me that the kid, when they weren't in out of control, you know, I mean, it's hard to control emotions and particularly for young people, but Basically, they they would teach that you never in anger, you know, Um, you can always you can always discuss things. You can always, you know, work out these compromises. You can do these all all these things without anger and without these uh, harsher techniques or whatever. And I I obviously have to read the book. I'm just a fool, you know, attempting to uh attempted to give you a breakdown of something that I barely understand myself, but, but it was inspiring to read about it. And, um, I look forward to reading the books and I do think that there's something very beautiful just in the titles of the books and it is a philosophy and a technique that I think, I wonder what we would all be like if we grew up with that method. I, I, I always have thought that, uh, and, I, and again, I'm not I'm not a parent, so I, I really should, I really can't say. But just in my in my humble opinion, I've always thought that um, adults, I don't know. Sometimes we treat kids like they're not people. And, and again, there, there's a balance to what I'm saying. But I feel like, 
you know, like like the, the example that you gave. I mean, you know, she's she's trying to understand, like, work with his world and work with his how he's seen things and the child. And you know, I, I think that there's so much power in that. And I think a lot of times kids get treated as just like I don't know, like dolls or something. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's like the parents. You know, they internalize a ton of a ton of uh responsibility and of course they have a ton of responsibility truly the the livelihood of of these kids is in their hands yeah so you know you can see how they might um I don't know. It might get like, you know, not, not overwhelmed exactly, but need a, need a, like a standardized procedure or something like this, you know? And, uh, and also, you know, it's easy. Like, yeah, it's so funny. You know, I, I like to think of when I feel like I'm seeing the world most clearly and people most clearly, I can see them, it's a weird thing to say out loud, but I can see them as a child. And by that, I kind of mean I can see their earnestness and their sincerity. And I feel like all people have this. And um, it alludes to what I believe to be true, that, uh, that people are inherently good. That, you know, there are no bad babies born. And the things that happen in life can make people, uh, you know, start habits and um, and, and protective uh, behavior, you know, defense mechanisms and things that could make them seem from the outside perspective like bad people or like they don't care enough or whatever. But but I do believe that there are no bad babies born and um and that for all the uh, all the bad actors that we have on the planet, uh, that ultimately the responsibility lies in us uh, for their bad behavior and not in nature, as people like to. You know, I, I've had this uh, debate with with many of my friends, and they would talk about. You know, we'd be talking about some bad behavior maybe in the world at large, and and they would say something like, "Well, that's human nature." And they love to quote, uh, you know, like survival of the fittest and these types of philosophies. But I've been reading this great book. Uh, It's called, let's see, let me see if I can recall here. It's called The Biology of Belief. And um, I think it's by a guy named Lipton. And, uh, well, I guess... There's a lot of, yeah, like responsibility uh, that is angled towards human nature, which is also, um, I'm not going to call it a cop out, but it says that you are no, you're no longer responsible for your actions because these things are genetically predetermined. You know, these things are determined by species as opposed to being like choices that we make. Well, I guess I don't believe in that. Um, and uh, I... Um, one thing that was very interesting in this Lipton book, this uh, biology of belief, is that he talks about this, the things that he's discovered as a, a cellular biologist. Uh, and he had a focus in genetics. And the, some of the things that he discovered is that... Now, this is, this is what I thought was very fascinating. He says that, that Darwin had, had some of that right, Although that quote, for one, is not something that he ever said. But in order to fix that quote, he said that it's the survival of the fittest groups, not survival of the fittest, not the strongest wins. That's not what determines things. The strongest groups win. And strong doesn't necessarily mean strength. It means cooperative because they're talking about the strength of a group is its cooperative nature. You know, the weakest link. You're only as strong as your weakest link kind of thing. And so the way he illustrates his belief, the reason he has this belief is through his scientific experience. And uh, what he what he knows to be true um, 
is that, you know, basically we all started as uh, single-celled organisms. I mean, life uh, in general started as single-celled organisms. And for some reason, and he, he, he um, posits that he kind of knows the reason. He said, for some reason, then we gravitated towards multicellular organisms. So at first there was just single-celled organisms and each one of them was doing all the jobs necessary to try and survive. But it was a very difficult life because they had to do everything and they were only aware of so much. And then as they would bind together, um, they now had more guys working, more guys and gals or whatever, working towards the same goal. So they could specialize in certain areas. They could specialize in something. It's like, I keep an eye out for anything that will damage um, uh, this, this thing that we call life. And so there's somebody who's keeping a lookout. There's another person who I take and I find food, which sustains us. And then there's another guy who says, I process the food and take the energy out of it and get rid of all of the toxic waste. And, and so anyway, he says that our evolution from being single celled creatures to being now a composite of 50 trillion cells, they say. A human being is basically made of 50 trillion cells. 50 trillion individual cells working together as a cooperative. And that, that is more efficient. So now you take that same fact and that principle and you superimpose it on the, the world at large. And you say that if you could get all of these things to work together, we would be that much more efficient and better at surviving. And, uh, and to me, his logic and his uh, theory um, makes a lot of sense. And I think I, I think I believe in it. And I haven't finished the book entirely, so maybe I'm speaking out of school again. I keep talking about books that I haven't quite finished, but... But I think it's a very important distinction because it, it, to me, it proves something that I always thought was a bad philosophy, a dismissive philosophy, and that is the survival of the fittest idea. Um, saying so, then the weak, then don't, you know, according to nature, they don't deserve to survive, right? And, uh, you know, people will justify their bad actions by saying, well, if they were quicker or stronger or better or smarter or all these things, then maybe they would deserve to live. You know, and, and we, 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 I think we express that same philosophy when like, you know, on a couple of occasions, sadly, I've had to, uh, you know, somebody say, Hey, how's your whoever? And I'd say, well, we lost them. You know, they died of cancer. And so often, so often the first thing somebody would say was like, oh, were they a smoker? And the implication is with that is that if they were a smoker, that then they deserve to die. That's, that's what that means. People looking for patterns saying, oh, well, I don't want to die. Like, uh, I don't smoke <laughs> or, or whatever it is, you know, it's like, the overarching logic is that uh, you earned your death with your bad behavior. And I think that's the same type of cop-out that um, survival of the fittest is. Saying, ah, it's human nature. Or you look at, like, the stockpiling of resources or billionaires, um, people with billions and billions of dollars. And, and you say, well, they deserve it because they were smarter and stronger and had more resources, and so this is the natural way of evolution, is what people would assume, uh, or is what people often assume. And I disagree. Now, I think that it's uh, survival of the fittest groups and cooperation that makes us more formidable and maybe better equipped for things like happiness and maybe evolution in a, in a sense. 
There are so many things going through my mind right now, which 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 is great. I mean, I'm probably gonna have to re replay this and like pick things out. Um, one theme that I feel, and I agree with it, I agree with everything you said. Uh, one theme that I feel is coming out of this episode is about the the value of each and every single human being and the dangers of dehumanizing people. And 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 we've talked we've talked about different aspects of that, you know, survival of the fittest, or I'm not going, you know, you're not in my religion, so I'm I'm automatically going to write you off. And I feel like you know, you know, for me, the lesson today is if we would just learn to keep this truth in our heart that every single fucking human being matters that I come across today, not not, not to mention nature and animals and the environment, but I mean that, that's all included too. But it's like if we can do that, I just feel like that would change our behavior in so many facets of our life um and i just think that's that's crazy are you familiar with uh i mean there, there's there's other words for this but i feel like tick han says it the best are you familiar with tick han's teaching on intervene i don't think so so he just takes uh you know the buddhist teachings of uh inter that, that are called interdependent co-arising and even karma and really just the idea that we're all one but but again he explains it in a very a different way, a very, a very modern way. And he says that, you know, uh, Han would say it this way, to be or to exist, to be is to interbe. There is no individual Jake Bellows or Jesse Armis. There, it's not like we're a bunch of marbles, like in a, in a tub, you know, that, that, that's not the way that the world works. You know, everything that I am, and I'm, I'm, I'm giving the bullet points, but everything that I am is a sum of everything else. And base, basic examples are going to be, I mean, you know, for me, I'm just my mom plus my dad. And you, you, you can take that all the way back to whenever the first human beings were. Like every, and, and, my, and my conditioning and all of these things, everything that, that people are or, in, or, quote, individual things are, is actually just the sum of the rest of the universe. You know, and, and, the, and the basic example he uses is like the flower. You know, if, if there was no sun there wouldn't be a flower. If there was no clouds with rain, there wouldn't be a flower. If there was, if there was no soil, soil, there wouldn't be a flower. If there was no one conscious to be aware of the flower, there wouldn't be a, a flower. Everything that makes a flower what it is are a bunch of things that are, quote, not the flower. The flower is made of, of he says, non-flower elements. So it's still a flower, sure, as a, as a designation, but really, if you, if you can really see with the eyes of Buddha or with the eyes of, quote, interbeing, you would see wow, the flower needs everything else to be what it is. Right. It is only it with everything. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I, I, think, I, I think I really agree with him. I, I always find him to be um, uh, brilliant in his distillation of, of philosophy into practicality. Um, I think he has a unique gift for that. And uh, I don't know enough about the religion or anything like that to uh, really know what his role is and or who he is supposed to be. But I can see his gifts quite clearly. Yeah, yeah. He, he, was, uh, he was the first Buddhist book that I read. And I wasn't pro or against, but he just really took away a lot of my misconceptions. And he really just... He, he's very good at doing that and very good at, at saying like, hey, like Buddhism isn't this dogmatic thing. I mean, there's even disagreements within, within our world, but really it's about the spirit, the essence, the philosophy, the main point, which again comes down to this, these practical truths that like, like we're talking about, every life matters, everybody matters, you know, we're all connected. So now that we know that it's not, it's not this little philosophy thing that we're going to sit around all day and talk about, how do we embody that? How do we enact that? And that really comes down to, you know, how, how we treat people. I think that you bring us to a really good point is like, um, uh, with, uh, to kind of like, uh, it's kind of a sidestep, but uh, a parallel idea is because I had extra time in my life to think about stuff like this. Um, I would think about how, how could you have the best and most effective influence on something as large as a planet when you're so small and um it's easy to look at the stars and or the news and or all these things that are spinning 
completely out of your control and um, think that, you know, well, I'll just tighten my circle. I'll just circle my wagons and tighten my, tighten my things to be concerned about to something that I think I can control, you know? And, um, but I, but I really believe, so anyway, uh, as I looked at that, um, in my life, I, I, I came to these points where it's like, well, probably the best way to make the world a better place is to have children and teach them well, everything that you've learned and you are the composite of everything that generations of people have learned. And hopefully, uh, without, you know, major trauma and damage, um, you would be able to pass on the golden nuggets to the kids. Well, if you, if you weren't going to have kids, um, then what's another way? And I felt like for me, at least at that time, that music was this opportunity. Music was a way that I could share the ideas that I believed in and the things that I was concerned about with a larger audience. And I felt like it was so important. And maybe it is. I, I don't know. At the time, I felt like it was. But um, moving forwards, I kind of was just like, well, but what if I don't get to make music? You know, now, now uh, I don't feel like I, I, I don't reach as many as I, as I once did. And I'm not poised to reach really that many more, although I'd like to continue to make music and I continue to express, uh, you know, kind of my beliefs and my, my at least approach um, through music. And that has changed a lot. You know, in the early days, there are a lot of songs that I wish that I had never written um, because of what I feel like the, their influence was or the, the impl implication of the song maybe felt like hopelessness or, or things like this, which, you know, at any given moment, a person can identify with that and feel less alone. So it's not totally without value. However, um, I was working as a, a valet at a, at a kind of a fancy restaurant, you know, so I'd, I would just sit out there and, uh, I'd valet the cars, I'd park the cars and I'd bring them out for people, you know, but I would, I would had a lot of like interactions with people, often very wealthy people. And, and, and from the point of a service, a service industry person, you know what I mean? Like you're not, you're like a bellboy for cars, you know, you're not really to be spoken to or necessarily to be like, you know, treated like a full on, like somebody who's dining in the fancy restaurant there's more respect that goes with that than goes with mine, my particular job. And, and, and in some ways I started seeing, I was like, dang, what's wrong with people? You know, uh, I've never felt so much like a nobody, you know, nobody has any interest in what I think I say hello or try to get a little laugh or, or try to like lighten their spirit or their mood. And I felt like unseen and kind of dismissed in that role. And it, and I resented it. And then I started reading a couple different books and I started thinking, actually, can I just like treat these people good? Some people come in and they don't want to talk and I should be able to tell that I should be paying attention. And maybe they've got something else on their mind. And so I should be sensitive to that. And so I've, I tried to do that. And then other people really could use somebody to chat with. And, uh, and I found myself standing out there for hours at a time visiting with somebody who was parked in the lot who um, had something on their mind and wanted to talk about something. And, and then we'd find some, some things we had in common and, and to have a discussion, which was totally valuable. And I guess I realized that it's like, well, I don't need what I thought I needed. I don't need the respect. And maybe I could just be good to them and treat them the best I could with what I knew every time, regardless, and um, without expecting anything from them. And I guess that's what it was. It's like, well, if I'm going to be nice, and it's kind of like this, uh, this golden rule, like the co-op, the co-opted nature of the golden rule. It's like do unto others as you would have done unto you. The motivation being 
I want good treatment, so I'll treat you good, I guess. <laughs> well, I think that that's like um, very self-absorbed and not necessarily the, uh, the best distilled version of that philosophy. I think like um, that you treat people good. Hey, how you doing? And um, you do it because they then treat people good. There's this exponential nature of your of your um, your influence in the world. So you think you don't reach anyone. You think you you know you talk to one gas station attendant, to where you talk to one person at Best Buy or whatever, and you don't reach anyone. But the space that you carry and um, the way that you carry yourself and your sincerity and your earnestness can change that person's day maybe then they run into two people and treat them with that same type of love and respect and then those people so there's this exponential nature of your of your behavior uh, and the influence it has you don't need to necessarily dump it all into uh music or dump it all into a child um going forwards in in the evolution of of humanity but you could do it in your daily interactions. And I feel like maybe we underplay how valuable that is and, and its exponential nature. I know you say that you're, you're not too familiar with the Buddhist religion, but what you just said was totally Buddhist. Well, you know, uh, over the course of time, like, yeah, it's like our, our ability to organize things into, uh, uh, you know, words and, uh, our words uh, uh, put put little like you know, in some for some people that would put a restriction around it. They'd be like, "Oh, that's Buddhist." Well, I'm not Buddhist, and I'm not, you know. I, so I I guess I can't believe that. Or, you know, I had some friends. I think the climate is interesting right now uh, with human beings and how, like, for raising their children, they had this. They have this quandary you know they've got these little kids and they're asking about what happens when people die what happens when animals die and trees die and um and my grandparents or my parents or whatever what happens like what does that mean and um i had some friends and they'd watch these movies you know they'd see like coco and uh or you know like a bunch of different like animated films that have like, you know, some sort of perspective, but oftentimes this perspective is a, either a cultural or a particular spiritual perspective. And then the parents are put in this position to say, well, you can't, I'm sorry, kid. I'm sorry, my child. You can't have a spirit animal. That's, that's from another culture. Well, you can't, you can't believe in, uh, you know, whatever, whatever the belief system is that originates with another culture. And there's this pressure that they're feeling to say, well, you can watch the movies, but these are not actually options for you in order for you to determine a belief system that works for you, you know? So it's a very confusing time to be a kid and to be a parent uh, trying to navigate the restrictions that have been culturally applied as far as what you can and cannot believe and not be, um, um, you know, called a charlatan or an appropriator. Yeah, I think a lot of things to be said to that, but I think one of the main elements of why people are scared to learn or even just be open or listen to other cultures or things even something like coco which i love coco by the way that movie that movie made me cry so much but it it really is this like element of fear like especially like if you think of like you know like i i grew up in a religious household and everything was like you know my parents were scared that if i did the wrong thing that you know god was going to get us and so that's why they were so closed off it was just fear yeah fear is a powerful motivator and um of course uh you know, so I guess I like to try to sit back far enough, and I know that we can't 
we can't detach from our uh, world community, but you know, through things like meditation and and uh, and looking at something from a distance, you can kind of be like, well, ultimately, I think that the goal is that we are all equal, and somehow, on an inherent level, we know that as a a world society and uh there's a bunch of like corrections going on right now you know with people of color and and religion and uh economic factors and uh, where you're from your education all these different ways of separating each other ways that we say a person is more or less valuable to me or to you you know and I think that ultimately where we want to end up at is to say that we are of equal value and that value is profound and important. And we all owe each other that respect and love because of it. So we're like at an in-between phase, you know, so from a, from a long distance perspective, you can see that as being like this ultimate goal. But on the way there... Um, we, we find ourselves putting up walls between belief systems uh, and cultures and, um, you know, socioeconomic factors and, uh, and skin color. I mean, like all these different, all these different walls that are being kind of like put up to take down later, you know? put up in the interim to do this job to try and equalize uh, everyone's value. Um, but in the process, we're actually maybe putting more focus on, on those factors as defining you and or separating you from the rest of the world or whatever, people who come from a different walk of life in whatever capacity. Anyway... So it's a difficult moment uh, while you're sitting in it. But from a distance, I feel like that's the direction that we're going. And that seems like a great place to be. It does. Jake, do you have any... We're going to go ahead and wrap it up. we got, we got about five minutes. But do you have any uh, books that you'd like to, rec- like to recommend? You, know, you seem to be an avid reader. You can recommend books that you love, that you're reading now, that you just... Anything you want. <laughs> I... I hope I haven't given the impression that I'm an avid reader. I, I'm, I, I try, I like to read um, to some degree, you know, but it's kind of like my meditation practice. I consider it a daily failure <laughs> and I'm okay with that. I just continue to practice at it. Um, I am reading, I mentioned the biology of belief, you know, Hafiz has, uh, I would feel like if you picked up any Hafiz book, you would find the value in it. Particularly, I like Daniel Ladinsky's translations. The one that I've been spending a lot of time with lately is called I Heard God Laughing. And then the other one, the one that was kind of my introduction, and truly I use it as a book of medicine. I like to start my mornings with a poem out of The Gift, which is also by Hafiz. <clears throat> and... Um, And I find it to be, you know, this baseline, if you start your day from this point, uh, these poems, they get into your mind and they imply the value. They imply a value system. They imply a way of behaving. And um, I find them to be like truly medicinal in in the way that uh, they can help me stay on track through the course of a day without getting too distracted by my shortcomings, failures, lack of money or career or family. Uh, you know, like I, I don't mean family in the sense I, I have a lovely family, but I don't have children. Um, but I love children. And, uh, you know, sometimes I regret that I don't have any, maybe one day that maybe one day that'll change, but, um, regardless, I still want to contribute and, uh, and help. I want to help. So that's, that's the whole reason that I study this kind of stuff and that I continue to try and stay open to 
all the ideas that come down the pipe without prejudice. That is beautiful. Well, Jake, it's been a pleasure to talk to you again. Uh, you, you really do inspire me. And uh, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of gold in your heart. So thank you for, for being with us. Hey, thanks so much, Jesse. I, I appreciate the chance to uh, share some of these thoughts. You know, it's, it's a process. And, um, and I got to say, you know, your heart's in the right place. And uh, I bet and I hope that people get a lot from your Thanks, Jake. Okay, with that, everybody, we're going to see you next time. Have a good day.